Episode 123, Admiral Television. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a December 29th, 2010 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. I need another story Something to get off my chest My life gets kinda boring Need something that I can confess It's known as the boob tube and it's believed to rot human brains. It's television. Developed in Europe in the 1920s, the television is now standard in homes around the world. In the 40s though, television was still in its infancy and to purchase one was a big deal. Join curator Laurel Fritsch and me as we examine an Admiral television used by the Rosser family in Delia, Kansas. The first in town, this admiral was something to see. In November, a Civil War letter brought the PBS television series History Detectives to the Kansas Historical Society. We go behind the scenes with reference librarian Lynn Fredrickson to find out how the letter was connected to Kansas and get the skinny on the mind-blowing excitement of documentary filmmaking. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect the small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas to John Lennon, Beatles frontman and hippie icon. Did White and Lennon share a love of transcendental meditation and incense? But first, Admiral Television. Good morning, Laurel. Good morning. Today we are going to discuss an impressive entertainment center from the late 1940s. Um, This particular console, made by the Admiral Corporation, is a combination telephone, record player, and radio. Uh, Frank and Minnie Rosser of Delia, Kansas, used the system. And, I mean, it kind of just looks like a a wood cabinet with Mm -hmm. a television and a TV, or with a TV, a radio, and uh, a record player kind of all neatly positioned inside the cabinet closes up almost looks like a like a liquor cabinet kind of yeah it kind of does and it really has that uh, style of wood that was very very popular during sort of the 1950s 1960s Mm -hmm. the rossers uh purchased their admiral in 1949 who was the admiral corporation because they made this television but uh who were they yeah, that's a really good question. And now, you know, with a name like Admiral, you'd imagine it would be, you know, maybe somewhere on the East Coast or something like that um, associated with oceans. But um, it was actually a company that was based in Chicago. And um, it's kind of a really interesting origin story. The owner was named uh, Ross Saragusa. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and uh, he, all his life, had really been interested in electronics and kind of tinkering and things like that. And um, at one point, he owned a company called the Continental Radio and Television Company, and that pretty much focused on just producing radios and phonographs. Um, And then once televisions came around, he started wanting to incorporate that into his business as well. 
And uh, something that he innovated when he was doing the phonographs and radios was he would put them both together in a combination unit. So it was like a a cabinet that contained both the phonograph and the radio. And what he did was sold those much more inexpensively than his competitors. So as a result of that, he was able to move a lot more of them than his competitors. And uh, so then what he did was he purchased the Admiral name from from a different company, and uh, then he started producing televisions under this name Admiral. And so whereas a lot of these manufacturers were producing these really high-priced, these big, bulky, large television sets during the early years of television, he really did something different by providing very, very small, compact, low-priced table models. After he um, did that, he designed this sort of combination unit that um, we have in our collection now. He was one of the very first ones who was a sponsor for television shows, which is Mm -hmm. something that now we're very accustomed to. And and, um, some of them were pretty big shows as well. Um, For example, your show of shows, which was a very popular program at the time, that um, was sponsored by Admiral. Now, you know, we're thinking about the Super Bowl and all those Super Bowl commercials, and uh, Admiral was one of the very first people to sponsor football games. They sponsored the Notre Dame, Notre Dame uh, football games. Nice. So, so Admiral is not really uh, a TV brand that I know of today. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, uh, in fact, I had never really heard of them before uh, we got this television. Mm. What uh, Whatever happened to Admiral? Um, really, they reached... Their, their sort of pinnacle um, between about 1948 and 1951. Um, so the Rossers, who donated our television, they bought theirs um, just at the beginning of sort of Admiral's Peak in 1949. And really, after about 1951 or so, their television sales just sort of started to decline. Um, you know, other people, it was just a competitive market. And um, as a result of that, um, they sort of switched their focus and they sort of got in, interested in appliances. So uh, in about the mid-1970s that um, they they were just kind of d- done with. Um, the business just kind of folded and they ended up getting sold in 1974. Um, but interestingly enough, as with a lot of companies, they tend to survive, or at least the name tends to survive in some unusual places. And um, in the case with Admiral, it was in hockey, believe mm-hmm. it or not, of all things. And uh, one of the investors of a hockey team in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, owned an appliance store that sold Admiral products. And so when the team was bought in 1971, he decided to, re- well, I'm sorry, all of the investors decided to rename the hockey team, the Milwaukee Admiral, sort of as a little bit of a nod um, to that. So that's really kind of quirky and unusual right. that it would survive in, in, of all things, in hockey. It's believed that Frank and Minnie uh, Rosser were the first people in Delia. Uh, that's where they, that's where they lived. It believes mm-hmm. that they were the first people to have a television, which would, is, is kind of phenomenal. I mean, I can't imagine being the first person in your town to have a television. Yeah. I can't imagine a town where uh, having it, there is a first for that. Mm-hmm. But um, but that's kind of interesting. How do we know that Frank and Minnie were the first in their town mm-hmm. to have the Admiral? 
Well, we can never be really sure, um, but we were fortunate in that the person who donated this television to us was um, the Rosser, one of one of the, she remembered actually getting that first television, I think, when she was about seven or eight years old. Sort of based off of her memory, we were able to, to say that. But I'd say that um, given sort of the rarity of uh, televisions during this time period, and um, Marilyn, that's the name of the person uh, who donated this to us, her father was a principal in the local school. And so, you know, they would have had, you know, about the, the um, about the uh, right economic level to purchase something like this. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's a really beautiful image or a really interesting thought um, to think about sort of this very small-knit com- community, you know, having the first television. And I have these images in my head of, you know, all the neighbors hearing about it, and they all sort of go over to the house to check out the new television. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess you can kind of think about it like an iPod or something like that or a new computer. Hey, you know, so-and-so has a computer. Let's go check it out. I think the you know they they bought theirs in 1949 and I mm. think television sales didn't really really peak until like the 1952 or something after the I think there was a national convention Republican and Democratic national conventions that were televised for the first time that year mm-hmm. so you know people were like really getting plugged into this concept of of like a national dialogue you know they were all now they were all watching the same thing and if you were those people that hadn't watched it, you were kind of out of the conversation. The Admiral had several component parts. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but you even have some specifics on how the family, the rosters, even used those parts. How did they use them? Right. Well, uh, thanks to Marilyn's memory, um, she told us that her father, Frank, he really enjoyed listening to the radio. And in particular, he liked to listen to the news. And um, then Marilyn herself, she really loved using the phonograph to play different record albums that she had. Um, And also, like all small children, she was a big fan of uh, the television programs they had on at the time. And so for her, it was things like Howdy Doody, Captain Kangaroo, and the Cisco Kid. Some claim that the 1950s were the golden age of television. In your opinion, Laurel, what were the best and worst television programs of that era? Well, I tend to prefer comedies, um, so I think show show of shows um, would probably have to be my pick for the best show. And uh, was that, that a variety show, or what it, was that? Yeah, it was kind of a variety show. It was a comedy kind of sketch type of show, and it had some really big name writers attached to it. And for for shows that weren't very good, um, I guess I, I personally have never been much of a fan of the old spaghetti westerns. Mm-hmm. So I, I'd probably have to pass on some of those. Um, There's some quiz shows that were pretty interesting. Mm. Um, and they're kind of fun to track. But uh, And I Love Lucy. I, I have to tell oh, you, to me, right, that's kind sure. of tested, that's kind of lasted the test of time. You know, I find even, you know, some of it's kind of dated. It's very 1950s specific, but mm-hmm. some of it is, is still funny. Absolutely. And everybody was watching these great shows on their premier Admiral television. That's right. All right, thanks, Laurel, for telling us about the Admiral. Well, you're welcome. Imagine all the people living for today. My name is Laurel Fritch, and in honor of the end of the museum's exhibit, Cars, the Need for Speed, this week's Kansas Quiz question is about cars. The U.S. interstate system was set up by what famous Kansan? Was it A, William Allen White, B, Walter P. Chrysler, 
or C, Dwight D. Eisenhower? I'll be back in just a second with the answer. In November 2010, History Detectives, a documentary television series on PBS, visited the Kansas Historical Society. The series revolves around researchers finding the truth to claims about family heirlooms. Eduardo Pagan, one of the show's primary researchers and history geek superstar, came to investigate facts related to a Civil War letter written between two Kansas brothers. Today, we talk to research librarian Lynn Fredrickson, who is involved in the show's investigation. Lynn, who were these brothers, and, and why did the History Detectives investigation lead to the Kansas Historical Society? Well, the, the main letter that they were concerned about um, on the show was this letter between a man named John Blackford, who was a soldier, a soldier with the 2nd Kansas Cavalry, and he was writing to his brother William, who was in Washington, D.C. at the time. Uh, this is June 24, 1863. We found that John Blackford's enlistment papers were among the state archives. His enlistment with the 2nd Kansas was in the archives showing that he was a resident of Lawrence at the time he enlisted in 1862 and uh, that he was 18 years old. I always think that's kind of sad. You think of how, how young these kids were. Yeah, when they were leaving to go to war, 18. When, and they're going off to the Civil War. And so um, his enlistment papers are one of the things that they were interested in using for the show. Right, so there's two brothers, John, mm -hmm. who's fighting with, and that, in the war, and William, who is working in Washington, D.C. Right, Okay. Right. And uh, William is um, the brother who first came to Kansas. He was there as early, it looks like, as 1855, and he was very involved in the Free State Movement. Um, he, that seems to be um, a point at which he became connected to Jim Lane. Senator Jim Lane. Yes, he was our first senator. We also know that William was in the first Kansas legislature after Kansas was finally admitted to the, to the Union. He was one of our legislators who sent Jim Lane to Washington. So we made a definite connection with Jim Lane, and that was important for, for purposes of the show because of the mention in John's letter to William. William has asked John in his last letter uh, if he'd be willing to accept a commission as an officer of one of the black regiments. What is the connection there? Well, William was connected to Jim Lane. We know that Jim Lane was the man who organized the first uh, African-American regiment for Kansas. They were the first black regiment that actually saw you know, action during the Civil War. So William, his, his association with Jim Lane is probably the reason that the, the question of a commission to be an officer of the black troops comes up. The officers for the black troops were always uh, white men. Mm -hmm. They did not actually appoint black officers for the black troops. So that, that isn't a very strange thing to find in the letter. Uh, so you, you basically have William, who is working for Senator Lane. Senator Lane is organizing, he's starting up these African-American regiments, and he's got one of his aides, William, looking for officers. And lo and behold, William has a brother. William receives another letter while he's in Washington from Arkansas in 1864, informing him that his brother has been captured at the Battle of Poison Springs. So the, this letter um, that was uncovered by a, a couple of stamp collectors, I think, that actually mm -hmm. purchased a box of stamps and they found this letter, um, this is what tipped off the history detectives. Um, they were kind of concerned about this only letter, but you've seen more material related to these two brothers, right? Yeah, and that was what was kind of um, 
interesting about the whole process. There was all of this other inter- you know, interesting information we came up with on William and what was going on in Kansas at the time, the fact that um, that Jim Lane was involved in everything. But, but they're really working on an 11-minute segment, so that wasn't something they pulled in. And it did turn out, when we saw the original letters, it did turn out that there were several more letters between John and William that uh, we didn't even realize were there, but mm-hmm. uh, but I did get to look at them when we were filming and try to very re- quickly read through them, you know. And we would be we would be really interested in all of that material. Eduardo Pegon, uh, which is kind of one of the superstars of History Detectives, mm-hmm. a- and a crew uh, spent the better part of an afternoon filming here. Uh, what was it like to be part of that documentary filmmaking process? It was it was a pretty small group. I think there were five people actually with their production crew, and it went well into the evening. Actually, it took a long time. They were doing, um, you know, close up close up of my hand when I was taking things off the shelf and putting it on, J- just little details like that. Very very oriented toward the visual production, not as much um, concerned with you know we're we're more kind of interested with the whole research aspect of it, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I'm not used to thinking in those little tiny visual details that they kept doing. So we did things over and over and over again. Well, if you think about it, Lynn, I mean, it is kind of hard to make research visual and entertaining. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I It's one thing when you're part so. of the process, but to, to relay that to others, uh, you know, I guess you end up with a lot of close-ups mm-hmm. of hands. Mm-hmm. Stats um, don't look that exciting. No? Yeah, a bunch, of, a bunch of boxes on shelves don't look that exciting. I guess they have to do something to make it more exciting. In addition to being a history detective, Pagan is a history professor at Arizona State University. How much researching does a stu- superstar like Pagan uh, actually do? Well, how much is done before he even gets here? People send in suggestions all the time for shows, and they must have a team of people that just start researching all of these threads and try to figure out if there's a show there or not. And so, actually, I'm quite sure that Eduardo was not part of that initial contact at all. We were we were in contact with other people uh, working on the research end of the show, and did all of that by email and, you know, um, faxing things off to them and things mm-hmm. like that. And I don't actually know at what point Eduardo became involved, at what point they decided this was his story and he was going to be the person who would present it for the show. But um, but it's certainly, I mean, yeah, he's a, he's a professor of history, so he certainly doesn't need to go do a whole lot of cramming, you know, to cover a Civil War history story. Uh, any idea when this show, when this particular episode will air? Did they did they indicate? All we know so far is it's going to be the summer 2011. Uh, they're just starting to film the shows for summer 2011, and so, uh, I'm excited to see what happens. So when we see that episode, we're going to see Eduardo walking into the uh-huh, Kansas history, uh-huh. uh, Kansas Historical Society. We're going to see him going through the collections. Mm-hmm. And and you will at least see my hands probably taking the collections <laughs> off the shelf. I'm not sure how much. How much else of me you'll, you'll see. But, uh. My name is Laurel Fritch, and I'm back with the answer to today's Kansas quiz question. The interstate system was set up by C. Dwight D. Eisenhower. 
Eisenhower was inspired to create major highways after taking part in a 1919 transcontinental military convoy across the United States, in which poor roads plagued the entire journey. Eisenhower took the lead in creating the National Interstate and Defense Highways Act in 1956. This led to four-lane highways across the entire country. And the very first section of interstate in the entire United States was completed just west of Topeka, Kansas in 1956. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is reference librarian Sarah Keckeisen. Say hello, Sarah. Hello, Sarah. <laughs> and registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. Today, we are connecting William Allen White, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author from Emporia, Kansas, to John Lennon, the British-born Beatles frontman and political activist. Sarah, can you give us a little background on Mr. Lennon, the uh, songwriter, not the communist dictator? You bet, Merle. Well, for those of you out there who are too young to have been a dyed-in-the-wool Beatle maniac and already know all this stuff, let me just uh, refresh your memories. John Winston Lennon was born in Liverpool, England on October 9, 1940, and was less than two months old when the German Luftwaffe started systematic bombing of the Liverpool docks. So Lennon was actually, like, bombed by German? Yeah, he was a war baby, right. big time. Oh, and Liverpool, more people died in the Liverpool Blitz than the London Blitz. Right, because that's wow. the big industrial center yeah. of, of England, right? Uh, Merseyside Docks, that was a big, yeah. So it was a bad place to live yeah, in World War II. Not good, Lennon. No. Okay. Um, his dad was Alfred Lennon, who was a merchant seaman, and Julia Lennon uh, was his mom, and she was an amateur musician. Following the nasty breakup of his parents' marriage, John moved in with his Aunt Mimi, who pretty much raised him. Despite exhibiting exceptional artistic skill, John received poor grades at school. His mother gave him his first guitar in 1957 over the objections of his Aunt Mimi, who believed that no good could come from this. Right. His Aunt Mimi seems pretty darn stuffy. Yeah, well, yes. She thought, she thought Paul McCartney was lower class mm. and didn't want John to associate with that Jeez, If she knew how much he was worth <laughs> now. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe she, she, he helped support her in her old age. She changed her mind or something. I don't know. Anyway, later he was able to uh, attend the Liverpool College of Art, and there he explored his rebellious nature and met his first wife, Cynthia Powell. Um, at age 16, John was introduced to that lower-class fellow, Paul McCartney, <laughs> and formed the musical group The Quarrymen, which would later evolve into The Beatles after the addition of uh, George Harrison and Ringo Starr. The Beatles first performed before an American audience in 1964 on The Ed Sullivan Show, skyrocketing their careers and triggering what was called the British Invasion. Which means all the British bands that followed yeah, that became Rolling popular Stones, in the U.S. Um, Dave Clark Five. Um, Who is that? Oh, you ask Bob. <laughs> Dave Clark start. He was. It was not that great of a group, but but the, Dave Clark was a drummer. So it was uh, it, it was interesting that a drummer was like the front man because he's the oh man. yeah that yeah. doesn't happen very often. Yeah, right, yeah. Good for Jerry him. and the pacemakers. Oh man, <laughs> let me go. On, on. Um, anyway, 
Due to his uh, John Lennon's relationship with Japanese artist Yoko Ono, John divorced his first wife in 1968 and moved to New York. John and Yoko increasingly experimented with both drugs and musical styles <laughs> and uh, became strong anti-Vietnam War advocates. Thirty years ago this month, on December 8, 1980, Mark David Chapman, a former children's camp counselor, shot and killed John Lennon right outside the Lennon's New York apartment. And for really unknown reasons. Like, I, I couldn't so. come across anything that, yeah. like, you know, not that it would really matter, but he never yeah. really stated what his reasons were. Well, like we said, you can't explain crazy. You can't explain crazy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sarah. Uh, I think you also have a story related to the Beatles' performance on the Ed Sullivan Show, right? You, you actually saw it. I did. I know it's hard for you to believe that I was already alive in 1964. <laughs> but, um, yes, I clearly remember watching the Ed Sullivan Show because that's what you did on Sunday night. Uh -huh. And uh, Imagine my 11-year-old disappointment when um, they, as they close-upped on each one of the, the Beatles, uh, they close-upped on, on John Lennon and put a little caption under him that said, Sorry, girls, he's married. Uh, and I was crushed. An 11-year-old <laughs> crush. It was, man. He was so cute and so funny, as we found out later by watching Hard Day's Night and Help and all those great movies. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, then uh, that was the start of my major Beatles, um, my ba major Beatles period. All the records, um, the little dolls like we have in the recent past exhibit uh -huh. here at the museum. Uh, we each one had one of those. Nice. Um, the um, John Lennon's books. He later wrote books uh, um, in his own right and a Spaniard in the works. I had those copies of those books. Was he a good writer? Well, you know. <laughs> he was a good musician. <laughs> he was a, an interesting writer and artist, shall we say. Uh -huh. yeah, they were pretty weird. So but they were you, like poems. Did yeah. you keep all of your memorabilia? Well, <laughs> uh, no. Oh, no. And then I, after the Beatles, I segued into the monkeys, and I don't have any of that stuff either. I'm just, I'm just so, so sad. Oh, I'm just a rotten person. <laughs> I know. <laughs> All right, Nikayla, I believe you have found a way to actually connect William Allen White to Beatles frontman John Lennon. Is it because William Allen White was a rock musician? It, yep, it is. You, really? No, no way. <laughs> <laughs> he played the drums. He was the Great. first drummer for the Beatles. He was <laughs> He was really into experimental the performance Quarryman art. When Quarry met rocks. That's right. He, it was when he was, over, he was over in England hanging out, you know, post-war, whatever, <laughs> even though he died during the war, whatever. Anyway, uh, yes, there is a solution, and it's a lot shorter than I thought it was going to be. So, as Sarah mentioned, uh, John Lennon moved to New York, and after he got there, he became friends with two peace activists, Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman. Both Rubin and Hoffman were part of the Chicago 7, who in 1968 uh, were arrested and charged with conspiracy and inciting riot during the um, protests that occurred at the Democratic National Convention in uh -oh. Chicago. Uh -huh. And much like his father I before him, <laughs> William, Lindsay, <laughs> William Lindsay White attended both the Democratic and Republican National Conventions in 1968. And he viewed the protests that he witnessed in Chicago as apocalyptic anarchy and wrote... Whoever takes over in 1968 will have in his hands the terror of a sinking ship. And as we know, William Lindsay is the son of William Allen. Wow. So there you okay. Go. Nice. So, yeah. uh, so they're practically related. Practically, yeah. 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 Okay. They're according like this. to the whites, it was all an apocalyptic. <laughs> whatever. Yep. Yeah. Apocalyptic anarchy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. Nicely done, Nikayla. Uh Sarah, would you like to issue the challenge for our next episode? You bet. 
All right, Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. <laughs> In two weeks, we will connect William Allen White to George Washington Carver, former Kansas resident and inventor of peanut butter. Yes. Are you sure about that? Well, apocalyptically, okay, apocalyptic peanut butter. Okay. Um, this notable African American was a pioneering scientist at the Tuskegee Institute and an advocate for poor farmers of every race. So, come back when we connect William Allen White to George Washington Carver. Were White and Carver BFF that enjoyed some PB&Js? Come back in two weeks. <laughs> that concludes episode 123, Admiral Television. If you would like to see images of this cocktail-influenced television set, go to our website at kshs.org. And click on Podcast from the Interact menu. What do you think of our podcast? Tell us. Tell us we're funny, or tell us the narrator has a great voice. You can post to the Kansas Historical Society's Facebook page, comment on iTunes, or complete a survey on our website. Whatever, just tell us. Come back in two weeks when museum specialist Donna Ray Pearson and I examine the legacy of slavery by looking at a piece of folk art. The sculpture depicts a slave on the auction block. The artist was a resident of Wabunsee County, Kansas, and the son of a former slave. What does a slave sculpture have to do with Kansas, and why is it squeezed inside a tiny bottle? Find out in two weeks. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. But I don't really like my flow, no, so tell me.